Sun Life Community Church came into being as the result of a compelling vision for a different kind of church, interested in what we call the Sun Life, experiencing and sharing the life of God's Son. Perhaps your heart is burdened these days. We invite you to allow the Word of God through the words of this message to bring rest to your soul and joy to your heart. This is a time when we have a chance to celebrate as a church family together communion with Jesus Christ. And we want everyone old enough to understand it and enjoy it, to be blessed by it. So we'll stay together and and let me just share a, a little bit from God's word as we prepare ourselves to just gather around, as it were, that table of the Lord and have him minister to us. Heavenly Father, we ask now as we open your word that it might become everything it says it is. We might find it to be alive and powerful, sharp and quick, able to peel back the layers of our life and get right to our innermost being and talk to us, instruct us, encourage us, strengthen us, ready us. Do all the things that the Word of God is intended to do, and especially do those things that we need right now to be done within us. We'll trust you to to just scatter this Word today out among this congregation, and it may fall into our hearts exactly according to our need. For we ask it now in Jesus' name, for the sake of the glorious church he's building. Amen. This morning for this communion meditation, I want us to focus our attention upon just one verse in the book of Acts. Turn to somebody and say questioningly, one verse? (laughs) One verse? And then those of you who are more experienced, see the newer people here might say one verse, man, that's going to be quick. The more experienced of you would say, I've seen him handle one verse before. Well, today we're going to look at one verse. It is the verse in the book of Acts that announces the end of what we, the last few weeks, have called the Camelot-like existence of the church in Jerusalem. That first church was just just awesome. We've been going through the first chapters of Acts and saw how they loved one another, how the apostles ministered there, how they just devoted themselves to the teaching of God's word and, and to the fellowship of the spirit. And, and we said, it's just like Camelot. It was that, that place that Christ through his spirit brought together the very first church. But this verse... This verse we look at today tells us it announces the end of that Camelot-like existence. It's a verse that tells us that the church that Jesus was building in this world was about to enter what we could call phase two of its existence. It's today's key scripture, and it's truly a key scripture in the entire gospel story. It's a key scripture that explains how the story of Jesus Christ ever made it as far as the shores of our land. And here it is. Today's key scripture, Acts chapter 8, verse 1. 
On that day, Luke writes, on that day a great persecution. Ah, that makes us want to hear more, doesn't it? On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. One verse telling us there is a change happening. Let's take a few moments just to clarify the meaning of that verse a little bit. We'll just go through it part by part, phrase by phrase, and here we go. First phrase, on that day. If you just picked up the book of Acts and started with chapter 8, and, and you read on that day, you'd say, what day? What day are they talking about? Well, it was the very day that Stephen was murdered. That he became a martyr to the church of Jesus Christ. He was stoned to death. Now, you remember Stephen. He was one of the seven men chosen to handle a very serious problem that had arisen in the Jerusalem church. A problem, really an administrative problem, but it was kind of pitting one group of people against another. Some were feeling neglected and other people were just unaware of it or not caring enough about it and it was creating a, a real situation and the apostles had the people appoint seven men, choose seven men who are full of wisdom and the Holy Spirit and let them handle this thing. Stephen was one of those seven. He was the first name mentioned uh, in, in Acts here and they begin to deal with the situation that potentially could have divided that wonderful fellowship into two halves. Into the half, into the people who had Hebrew background as Jews and people who had Greek backgrounds as Jews. Seemed to divide into an ethnic kind of a controversy and they could have just been divided along ethnically defined lines. But they chose godly men, wise men, to settle this issue and heal that, that growing gap between them. And as far as we know, they handled it perfectly because we never hear about it again. Stephen was one of those seven useful, practical, wise, problem-solving men. Stephen, we read, also was a man full of the Holy Spirit and faith and wisdom, Luke says. Stephen was a true example, we saw last week, of really what Jesus Christ would want every single one of us to be. I heard of two men this past week who got together and took that list we had last week. Nine characteristics I thought would be here till supper time to get through those. But we got through them. Nine characteristics of Stephen as a man of God. And they sat down and went through that list and discussed back and forth forth where their own lives stand relative to each of those nine things. You see, what Stephen presented, what the scripture tells us about him, is simply the kind of man, the kind of person, the kind of believer that Jesus would want every one of his followers to be. Stephen was, Luke says, a notable man that is a much-noticed believer. The Spirit worked through him to produce Luke's words, 
great wonders and miraculous signs. Everybody in the church, after a while, got to know Stephen, almost like one of the apostles. God was using him to do great things and powerful things and impressive things and things that honored and served the Lord Jesus Christ and that showed he was just full of the Spirit of God. It wasn't just his own abilities. It was God working in him. And people noted that. And as a result, Stephen became a target for the unbelieving Jews. The Jews who had participated in killing Jesus. The Jews that saw this church thing as a threat. And they begin to see Stephen as maybe one of the bigger problems in this new church thing. Maybe more of a threat even than the apostles themselves. And so they brought Stephen before them. The great Jewish council called the Sanhedrin. They brought him in to question him, to threaten him. And they gave him a chance to speak. Which was not good. Stephen spoke with such brilliance. He covered the entire Hebrew history in just a matter of paragraphs as it's in the book of Acts. And he went through every single significant thing that God had ever done for them as a people. All the great things beginning with Abraham himself. And Stephen then brought the story right down to that very council, the very men he's looking at. He brought the story right down to the present day and discussed their dealings then with Jesus Christ. The righteous one that God had sent to them. Well, when he got that far, you can just sense there were fires of resentment and frustration stirred within his listeners. These were the leaders of the Jews, the chief priests, the elders, the judges of the people. And they begin to certainly resent and begin to be angered by the fact that Stephen is saying Jesus Christ was the one God, the father of their nation, had brought and they had put him to death. You can imagine what was stirring. And, and then Stephen, <laughs> Stephen poured, you could say, gasoline on those fires by then turning and accusing them face to face of just being a bunch of stiff-necked people who always resist the very Spirit of God. The very Spirit of God by whom God had led his people through all of their history. And at that point, his words of accusation incensed them. And they grabbed him and they dragged him outside the city walls and they stoned him to death. And you got to know for them it felt good. They felt righteous. They had finally done something about this heresy that was threatening their long-term Jewish faith. And having dealt with such a notable believer, why not so deal with all of them and be done with this threat once and for all? And so Luke says, our key scripture, on that day, second phrase, a great 
persecution broke out. A great persecution broke out. We could say things went from bad to worse. Now, this was something new. Up until that time, only the leaders of the church, the apostles, and here Stephen, had been targeted by the Jewish authorities. But emboldened, emboldened by the people's response to Stephen's death and the way they, they themselves felt about it, I'm sure, these Jews now put a bullseye on the back of every single member of this church thing. Arrest them, charge them, try them, sentence them, put an end to this false religion once and for all. And as a result, looking on in our key scripture, it says, all, that is the believers, all the believers except the apostles were scattered. They fled. Well, of course they did. These were ordinary people. These were people with families. Many of these people were not actually residents of Jerusalem anyway. Remember when we told the story on the day of Pentecost? There were many, many Jewish pilgrims who had come from far places to Jerusalem to participate in the Pentecost festival. And being there, they had seen the miracle of Pentecost. They had seen the, the Holy Spirit come upon the crowd, upon the apostles. They had seen the flames of fire on their head. They had heard the apostles preach and teach the, the sayings, the teachings of Jesus. And every one of them heard in their own language. They recognized a, what a miracle that was. And they were there. And a good all of these believers, they, they listened to Peter's message. They accepted it. They they repented of their sins. They acknowledged Christ as Savior. They were baptized in his name and they received themselves the, the gift of the Holy Spirit and it's like they were bound together in a group that they never wanted to, to leave go of. It became that marvelous fellowship, that church, that loving body, that caring body and, and yet Jerusalem for many of them was just a, had been a tourist stop. Probably a lot of them went right back home, wherever home was. At least it says they fled through the province of Judea. We're in Apple Valley. Think San Bernardino County, Judea. If we had to flee here but stay within the county lines, we could still go quite a ways, couldn't we? There's some places in San Bernardino County, we would say they'll never find us. <laughs> So they fled through Judea. That was the nearest province that Jerusalem was part of. But it says some of them even went to Samaria. Samaria. That was the next province up. Think Northern California. A place where some of us would not be caught dead. <laughs> Samaria in those days was a place of, of a very suspect religion. A good Jewish person would not even walk through Samaria. And so these disciples, many of them, 
They fled there. This would be one place their accusers, their persecutors, probably would think twice about going to track them down. So that's where they went. Luke tells us that's what happened. And that's a bit of clarification of how this persecution affected the church that had been so miraculously and lovingly built in the capital city of Jerusalem. I would believe, given the bliss of that early fellowship, I would believe that very few of those born-again members of that Jerusalem church had a grab-and-go bag ready. They didn't think this was going to happen. They probably thought they'd go back home sometime, maybe start a little church fellowship where, where they came from, but they didn't believe their life was going to be put at risk. And so they're all, they're all packed and prepared to go and, and say, Mother, grab the bag and get the kids. We're out of here. The persecution has begun. No, it began before they had a chance to even consider it might happen. But they had to run anyway. Now let me say this. I think it was true of them. And I know it's true of us. There is a tendency and even some biblical history to lead us Christians to believe that God will protect us and keep us from such drastic times. Isn't there? We pray, God protect us, even when we travel down the hill. We sort of believe that as his children, there's kind of a built-in deal where he will protect us from times of real serious trouble, and that's part of the commitment he's made Let me tell you, there has never been a time in my life before today as a citizen of this great country where it has been more appropriate to read this scripture that we have read today and identify what I'm calling today a key observation we must make. A key observation to make. And here it is. Take a deep breath. The church of Jesus Christ is not exempt from attack. And its members are not promised protection from harm. On that day, a great persecution broke out. For nearly 100% of my ever-lengthening life, I have accepted that statement that the church is not protected, that the church is not exempt. I have accepted that statement as primarily a historical, or we might even say a geological or geographical observation. That is, I always considered that verse to be true in either another time or in another place but not in my life and not in this place. You see, it was true. Obviously, I knew this. It was true in the early days of the church, demonstrated by this very passage in Acts. Those believers weren't protected. Stephen wasn't protected. He wasn't exempt. And yes, it was true in the days of the Protestant Reformation when reformers and their followers were sometimes burned at stake. They weren't protected. 
They weren't exempt from this kind of trouble. And yes, it certainly was true in the 1950s when those five young American missionaries were slaughtered in the jungles of Ecuador. I went to a college where two of the boys, the men's dorms, had the names of two of those young men who had been Wheaton graduates who had given their lives and had been slaughtered by unbelieving uh, people in Ecuador. Yes, yes, it's been true through the years, in another time, in another place, but not here, not in this country that celebrates its religious liberty and even its wonderful Christian heritage. But let me declare to you, let me declare to you today that I no longer accept the above observation that Christians are not exempt and are not protected. I no longer accept that as merely referring to some other time and some other place. It has become true for us. And we need to be ready I don't know exactly what we'd put in our grab-and-go bag, but we need to be ready. For it has become true for us right here and right now. And so I share with you what I'm calling this morning a key danger to avoid, because what I'm saying right now can be falling on some ears who are saying, I don't know, I don't know, you know. See, just trying to over... No... Let me say there's a danger here that we need to avoid. And that danger is this. Thinking that we Christians are exempt and or somehow protected from the kind of stuff we're reading even took place in those early days and that we know have taken place in other times and that we know in other parts of our world right now are happening. We need to eliminate from our mind the idea that not in this country, not in this time, not in my life, I will never have to gear myself up to prepare for anything like that because we live in this wonderful land. You see, we are not exempt. We are not protected, even though, and this is where we get that notion. We don't find a Bible verse for it, but American Christians have that notion, that belief deep within their DNA. God will not allow blah, blah, blah. We are protected. God, we are his people. We have that in our spiritual DNA, not because we're quoting a Bible verse, but because of the very nature of our country. The very nature of our country and the freedoms and the rights embraced by our Constitution have over the past nearly 250 years built a kind of hedge of protection around us as willful followers of Jesus Christ. Our Constitution says you have every right to do that. Our Constitution, in fact, says, go back to our founding fathers and mothers, and we would hear them saying, we trust in God. We put it on our money. Won't happen in this place. You see, all these 
patterns of our life, all of these procedures that this country's part of, all of these rights and so forth that our Constitution has acknowledged that has generally been interpreted in a solidly Christian way, that's built a hedge of protection around us. It's not so much that God has directly intervened and just... No, the system's been built. I believe by the the leading of God, by the wisdom he's given, but on this day, at this time, let me just say, that hedge of protection built by the, the governing documents of this country has more holes in it today than does our southern border wall. Biblical truths are not only under attack. They are actually being legislated right out of public and political life. Churches and individual followers of Christ that declare God-revealed truths about life and value will initially and are already being mocked as out of touch and out of date but in time and in some places already are being viewed, those standards, those values, as being both disruptive and dangerous to the greater good. And when that happens, when that broadly becomes the attitude of the people of this country and particularly the leaders of this country, when that happens... deciding that these people called Christians who take that book, the Bible, seriously and are trying to say these are the principles of God. This is the way God has created man. This is the way that God defines human society. When it happens, that those views officially become dangerous and destructive to the greater good, there will be many who will be picking up stones in an attempt to settle this disturbance once and for all. My message this morning is that when that happens, we must not be caught off guard We must not question our faith and say, I thought that we were living under the protection of God. How can God allow us to be treated this way? And give the devil a chance to whisper in your ear, well, maybe God isn't who you think he is. Maybe there isn't even a God. Maybe this is all just a lot of hooey you've been brought up in. See, we cannot, because we're unprepared begin to question things like that. Is my faith... I always believed this. Well, friends, that's an unbiblical belief. We've been able to hold it in this land because the country itself provides for that safety spot where we can live godly lives and people can say that's the right way to live. That's even the American way to live. We encourage that. We support that. We reward that. But when all of that starts breaking down, 
then, my friends, we find ourselves to be in the same position that God has allowed his people to always be in when they didn't live in such a unique place as we live in. And so I don't want us to say, I thought we were living under the protection of God. How can God allow us to be treated in such a way? What I want us to say when such a thing begins to happen, or if you even just experience it individually, and somebody says, you can't work here anymore. You're so on a step, on a touch with the values of this organization, of the way we need to look at people and deal with people and, and honor this and honor that. You can't work here anymore. If that happens to you, that's a persecution. That's a death of something that, that you have been counting on. I do not want you to say, how could God let this happen? I thought God would protect me from that. I want you to say this. Jesus was right. Jesus was right. He said such things would happen to those who are his. And so... As we prepare in just a moment to take communion as a unified church body with the one who himself was abused and shamefully treated more than any other, let me focus your attention upon just this key teaching of Jesus. And with this we'll close and with this we'll establish that, that focus and connection with him that will carry us through this, uh, this time of connection with him. Jesus said, John 16.33, in this world, and it really means throughout your whole life, in this world you will have trouble. There's not a special dispensation given to anybody who's a follower of Jesus Christ. They'll never get sick. They'll never experience difficulties. They'll never have trouble. They're Christians. In this world you will have trouble. And we don't have time to delineate all the various kinds of trouble. But here's one kind that Jesus himself identified in what we call the Beatitudes. Matthew chapter 5 verse 11. He says, blessed are you. See, now that's what we want to hear. Blessed are you. We connect ourselves to Jesus Christ through faith. We become followers of his. We identify ourselves as Christians. We say, God is my father. I've been born again by faith into the family of God. We're blessed. That's what I wanted to hear. Well, then Jesus goes on. Blessed are you when men insult you. Huh. Never looked at an insult that way before. Blessed are you when men insult you, when they persecute you, when they falsely say all kinds of evil against you, he says, because of me. Because you identify with Jesus Christ and they find that to be horrible. They find that to be terrible. That might, they might even find that to be treasonous. In certain places of the world already they do. And Jesus says, when that happens, and by the way, that implies that might and will probably happen, he says, that's when you're really blessed. Because what that does is tell you, it tells the people around you, and it tells the heavenly hosts themselves that you are one of God's. You belong to Jesus Christ. 
when the people around you curse you because if Jesus were here, they'd love to curse him. But since you're here as his representative, they'll just curse you. They'll just mistreat you. They'd much rather mistreat him directly. But if you're here and linked to him, then man, you're going to get everything they would give him. And Jesus says, you get in that position. I want you to feel blessed. You're taking it on the chin for the Son of God. You're taking it on the chin for one that God sent into this world to save your soul. And he did save your soul. Just, and, and the years are going to go by fast, but eternity is forever. Just feel the smile of God upon your life. That you're standing firm with his son. And not letting anybody's mistreatment turn you away from him. Jesus says, oh man, bless. See, you and I. We might be getting a chance to do that for the first time in our lives. And that's what I had in mind with our final thought. It says this. In the early years of my pastoral ministry, I would have never dreamed of these words coming out of my mouth. But today, here they come. Final thought. The 21st century American church, that's us. We're the Church of Jesus Christ in the 21st century. The 21st century American church might be the first American church. Now we can think all the way back to the 1700s. All the churches that have been part of this great country. All the churches whose, whose leaders have had a voice in the founding of the country. All of the churches who have embraced the, the ministries of great evangelists and preachers and teachers and thousands have come to Christ through all the years and none of them have been abused. None of them have been thrown into jail just because they believe in Jesus. The 21st century church might be the first American church to experience first century Christianity. The 21st century church might be the first church in this country that, whose members get to experience the treatment that the Christians in the first century experienced. That's that's a shocking statement. I would have said, I, I don't believe it'll ever really come to that. We always have people in this country who are off on whatever. And we have liberal teachers here and there. And we have people who are denying the truths of God. I mean, there, you always have a few like that. But I never thought it would come to a place where the actual laws being passed in the country are denying the very principles of God's word. And then are making people suspect if they believe contrary to the law and teach contrary to the law because they're choosing between God's word, word and man's law and, and they're getting in trouble for that, getting thrown into jail for that maybe. Never thought I'd say that, but I'm saying that to you. I'm saying that to me. We need to be ready for this. Some of us, praise God, don't have many years to go. We may not get into the deepest, darkest, worst part of all of this. Those of you, oh boy, look at you. Look forward. 
We got college kids in this group. We have young couples in this group. We have you who are raising children, uh, young ones at home, that you need to begin to teach them how life goes for a Christian in this world. And you're going to have to teach them differently than my mother taught me. You're going to have to say, you know, it's a challenge to follow Jesus. There are some people who even think that, that we're teaching dangerous stuff. That we're going to upset the new society. We're going to be a, a problem to uh, successfully bringing all the sides together in some sort of an agreement. I never had to be taught that. But I'm telling you, every day we live, every year we have, and those of you who a good part of your life is still in front of you and the children who have all of their life in front of them, they need to be instructed in a much more biblical understanding of the Christian faith than the Americanized version that we've had most of our lives, all of our lives. We might really be living in, not long, a first century kind of faith, which is actually the only real kind. So friends, be ready. But also be aware that Jesus and his Holy Spirit who is right beside you, when you come to those times where standing for Christ takes some guts, when living according to God's truth means denying some other things that other people are declaring as truth, just know at those times Jesus Christ's smile is upon you. His Holy Spirit is thrilled to be walking in fellowship with a genuine one like you. And feel the blessing of God. And be thankful that you are actually getting a chance. Like very few Americans have ever had. You are getting a chance to live and to be the real deal. In the midst of a fallen world. Oh I think as, as we commune with Christ. We, we want to just let him know Lord. I'm with you on this. Give me strength to get through it. I'm not asking protection because that. That isn't in the cards. But just by your spirit, give me strength, resolve, confidence, joy, all these things that whatever comes my way, I'm going to walk with you. And I'm going to let your spirit just be my, my guide, my strength, my hope, and, and bring the voice of God to me saying, well done, well done. Heavenly Father, we... Uh, there's some things that are shocking in our world today. For those of us who have lived many years in this country, they're incredibly shocking. How fast changes are coming, how fast attitudes are changing, how fast laws are being adjusted, and how quickly the Christian faith is, is being viewed sideways by many and found undesirable and unacceptable, perhaps even by most. Father, these are days to, uh, to sense that we can be the kind of church that, that the church has always been. A church under fire, but a church filled with grace. A church under fire, but a, a church conscious of the, the Spirit of God, right? So close that they can feel him. 
Father, may we just know the joy of that. May we know the blessing of being faithful and true. For I ask you this now in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope this message has inspired you to live the sun life together with us. If you are near Apple Valley, California this weekend, we invite you to join us in person Sunday morning or through our live broadcast. All the details are on our website at sunlifecommunitychurch.com.